Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cory Booker this afternoon demanding Joe Biden apologize for his comments about segregationists. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. The lead starts right now. Joe Biden says a racist senator never called him boy. As an example of a time when there was civility in the Senate, the major Democratic backlash today on the 2020 campaign trail. What year is it? President Trump heading back to Washington right now after kicking off his campaign by rehashing his bashing of Hillary Clinton as a woman who had his ear for years refuses to talk about the past. Plus, burning questions, the EPA rolling back a plan that the agency once said could prevent thousands of people from dying early. They're doing so in order to keep a Trump campaign promise. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start with the 2020 lead today and Joe Biden under attack from many members of his own party in outcry today over his comments last night at a fundraiser. The former vice president who was in the U.S. Senate for almost 40 years before that recalled his working relationship with segregationist senators, bemoaning that while he disagreed with them on racial issues, quote, at least there was some civility. A former Senator James Eastland, a Democrat of Mississippi who once called African-Americans an inferior race, Biden said, quote, he never called me boy. He always called me son of another segregationist, former Democratic Senator Herman Talmadge of Georgia. Biden said, quote, we didn't agree on much of anything. We got things done. We got it finished. But today you look at the other side and you're the enemy. Today, many of Biden's 2020 rivals, Senator Cory Booker, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, are calling Biden out. Booker demanding that Biden apologize. De Blasio tweeting along with an image of his family, quote, it's 2019 and Joe Biden is longing for the good old days of civility typified by James Eastland. Eastland thought my multiracial family should be illegal and that whites were entitled to, quote, the pursuit of dead. And then de Blasio uses the N word, quoting Senator Eastland. De Blasio adding, quote, It's past time for apologies or evolution from Joe Biden. He repeatedly demonstrates that he is out of step with the values of the modern Democratic Party, unquote. The outrage coming as a larger discussion about slavery and reparations drew considerable crowds on Capitol Hill. As CNN Sunland Sirfati now reports for us, Biden's team is right now trying to play defense and explain what he really meant. Former Vice President Joe Biden's attempt at talking about civility turning into a verbal war of words. At a fundraiser Tuesday night, Biden brought up working in the 1970s with former Mississippi Senator James Eastland and former Georgia Senator Herman Talmadge, both avid segregationists and opponents of civil rights, as examples of how, quote, we got things done. Telling donors about Eastland, quote, he never called me boy, he called me son. Though Biden made clear he didn't agree with the pair's racist views, the 2020 Democratic frontrunner is now getting backlash. It's about time we find the common ground and the common purpose to deal with the ugly past. Primary opponent Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey releasing a statement saying, I'm disappointed that he hasn't issued an immediate apology. 
adding, you don't joke about calling black men boys. He's wrong for using his relationships with Eastland and Talmadge as examples of how to bring our country together. Sources tell CNN Biden has been warned by advisors not to bring up Eastland. Person close to Biden telling us he needs to use a new, less problematic example. I believe right now, today, we have a historic opportunity to break the silence. Biden's comments come as Booker and others, including actor Danny Glover, took to Capitol Hill today to talk about reparations for the descendants of slaves, an issue Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell threw cold water on. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Pointing to the election of former President Barack Obama as a way he believes the nation has dealt with slavery. We've, you know, tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing uh, landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, we've elected an African-American president. But that is coming from someone who tried to stop the first African-American president at all costs. We will stop the liberal onslaught. Telling the National Journal in 2010, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. McConnell's stance quickly being chastised by Democrats. For a century after the Civil War, black people were subjected to a relentless campaign of terror, a campaign that extended well into the lifetime of Majority Leader McConnell. There's a tremendous amount of ignorance uh, in, in that statement, I, and, and you hear things like that. And back on that moment of controversy right now for Joe Biden, his defenders up here on Capitol Hill, they are trying to make the case that both those former senators, they are people who had enormous power up here on Capitol Hill in the 70s, uh, people that members just had to deal with. But that argument, Jake, not likely to satisfy the critics and opponents of Biden who are calling him out for this. Jake. All right. Sondland's are fighting on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's chew over all this with our with our experts uh, here. Karen Finney, let me let me start with you. Here is how Biden's campaign is defending his remarks. Take a listen. And as he says in the story, you know, that he didn't agree with them and he absolutely did not agree, but that they were able to disagree and that there was civility involved. He didn't praise them. He didn't praise their positions. He certainly didn't endorse their positions. It's a story he's told many times. So that's Anita Dunn, who's an advisor to yep. the Biden campaign. But we should point out Biden advisors, according to our reporting, have told the former vice president, stop invoking segregationists that you had a pleasant working relationship with. <laughs> How about that, for starters? And happy Juneteenth. I mean, right. of all days that we would be having this conversation, uh, you know, there are a couple of problems with this. I'm going to put the race piece aside as much as I'd like to get into that and say... It's a big, pretty big piece to put aside. <laughs> I know, but I think part of this is... It, there has to be someone else that Joe Biden has worked with during his time in Washington than segregationists. He keeps going back so far. Strom Thurmond. Strom Jesse Thur Helms, right? yeah. How about during the Obama years? How about pick a, senator, a Republican senator that maybe you were able to get something done with? If the point is to say we can get things done, mm -hmm. you can have that conversation. But you cannot in 2020, 2019, talk about civility and say things like, well, he didn't call me Boy, he called me son. And I will pull the race piece in. I've been with my father pulled over on a, a dark southern road, and the, and the cop called my father boy. And it was the most terrifying moment of my life. So, yeah, he's got to stop. But I think it also suggests that this is part of the age problem that we keep hearing that they keep trying to cover up. Somehow in his mind, he keeps forgetting, don't quote the segregationists. 
And, and by the way, I mean, the picture is a little more complicated than Anita Dunn suggested there, because, in fact, he did work with the most conservative uh, conservative centers on racial issues in his opposition to busing in the late 70s right. and early 80s. I mean, he allied with them on a series of efforts to roll back the use of busing. I look at this as episode 20 of what will be 200 episodes of the underlying issue, which Karen alluded to. We talked about this before, Jake. If Biden is the nominee in 2020, it will be 50 years after he was first elected to public office. That would be the widest span in American history for any nominee of any party, Democrat, Republican or Whig. And what that means is that he has taken a lot of positions and said a lot of things over a lot of years that are now looked at differently within his party. And, you know, we, this this issue in different form comes up all the time and it will continue to come up. And ultimately, Democrats are going to have to decide whether they are willing to accept that he has, quote, evolved uh, or whether these earlier comments are going to be held against him. And he doesn't make it easier when he when he kind of praises figures like Eastland. And Aisha, the highest ranking African-American in Congress, uh, Congressman um, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, defended Biden today, uh, his fellow Democrats, saying that this isn't all that different from when he talks to Clyburn, talks about how he worked with Strom Thurmond on issues. Uh, and and uh, maybe it's a, a, a generational thing in, the, in that respect. I don't know. I mean, there, there. I think the larger issue here that can be talked about is this idea of civility and what that means. When he says that, okay, I worked with segregationists on certain issues, I was able to be civil with them, but the positions that they were taking were detrimental mm. to Americans, to people in this country. And so there's a question, I think, now that people are asking, do we want to be civil and just kind of be polite to people who actually hold views that are detrimental and that are harmful to people. And is that the way that the Democratic Party wants to handle it? Or do they want to be more aggressive? That's a fundamental mm. issue that's going to have to be answered. And, and, and that's one of the arguments I saw is that Biden's saying, you know, we, we didn't treat people like the enemy right then. And so there are people in the Democratic Party and in America in general think, well, maybe you should have treated some of these segregationists as the enemy because they were in favor of oppressing millions and millions of people because of their race. Yeah, it's odd in so many respects, including, I mean, that one sentence, I hadn't really realized I'd read about it earlier in the day when he said, he didn't call me boy. Yeah, but why would what he call that, you boy? Yeah, right, right, that right. doesn't kind of, that doesn't understand. really excuse calling adult men boys and, and the whole pattern of what was happening in the South, obviously. So there's a certain cluelessness there. It does remind one of his, his age. James O. Eastland came to the Senate, I looked this up, uh, the summer before Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. So Joe Biden worked proudly with someone who was I mean, the Senate before a huge majority of Americans were born. Uh, but I do think also, look, if you're going to cite bipartisanship and civility, fine. That's a card to I mean, it's a legitimate claim for Biden to make cite an actual piece of legislation that he passed with a Republican co-sponsor. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fine. I worked with Bob Dole on I don't know, I'm making this up. Yeah, the Americans right. with Disabilities Act or something. Right. If I did work with the Voting Republicans, Rights Act, probably. Yeah. Voting Rights Act. But Voting instead, Rights Act. just vaguely citing a segregationist who died in 1978 is a little weird. I think it's even more pointed, Aisha, just from something that you said, because if also if you think about who it is. Democrats are up against and what the last two and a half years have been like. We have seen an increase in anti-Semitism. We have seen an increase in um, acts of violence by right wing crazies. We have seen we had Charlottesville. I mean, we've seen a rise in hate and a rise in that sort of divisiveness. And so to try to use the example of a segregationist as this as civility it also just, I mean, it's shocking, but it also, it, it belies the moment that we're in and the person that we are trying to say we are and d differentiate ourselves from. Everyone stick around. President Trump probably hoping that one of his closest confidants stayed loyal to him while testifying behind closed doors today. Hope Hicks could wrap up her testimony any moment. We'll bring that to you then. Captain Sully Sullenberger is responsible.
responsible for the miracle on the Hudson. And now he's giving some chilling testimony about the grounded Boeing 737 MAX. Stay with us. We have some breaking news in the politics lead. One of President Trump's closest former confidants, Hope Hicks, is on Capitol Hill right now, refusing to answer questions about her time in the White House. Frustrated Democrats are vowing to take Hicks to court. And just moments ago, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler said his committee would, quote, destroy the White House claims in court. CNN's Manu Raju joins me now live on Capitol Hill. Manu, did, did Hicks answer any of the questions Democrats had? She did. She answered questions about her time on the campaign trail. That was one focus of today's day-long hearing, which is still going on and should wrap up in a matter of moments. One of the questions that Democrats had going in was what she knew about those hush money payments that occurred in the run-up to the 2016 election to silence those alleged extramarital affairs involving then-candidate Trump. She told, according to multiple sources with knowledge of her testimony, that she had no knowledge about those hush money payments during the campaign. Now, she was asked what she knew about those hush money payments at the time in the White House. That's when White House lawyers objected to that and virtually every other topic about the White House, saying she's covered by immunity that would prevent senior White House officials from testifying to Capitol Hill about matters occurring in the White House. Now, that just didn't just extend to that topic, but all the other topics in the Mueller report regarding potential obstruction of justice, allegations the president may have undermined the Mueller investigation. She would not talk about those topics because the White House attorneys in the room said that she is uh, immune from testifying about those matters. And that's what Democrats are saying. We'll see you in court. Yeah, the president uh, asserting executive privilege. Uh, Assuming Democrats do ultimately take this to court, what would happen next for Hope Hicks? Well, we think this is going to happen fairly soon. Jerry Nadler, the House Judiciary Chairman, just said moments ago that he does plan to fight this out in court. He, as he's noted, Jake, he said that he would destroy the White House's claims in court. And at that point, presumably the Democrats do win, that could force her to answer these questions. But that could take some time, Jake. So how this ultimately ends up, no one quite knows. But at the moment, Democrats not happy. And Republicans are saying this has all been a waste of time. All right, Manaraju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's chew over all this. Ayesha, the president, tweeted today, quote, the Democrats are very unhappy with the Mueller report. So after almost three years, they want a redo or a do over. Hope Hicks was mentioned 184 times in the Mueller report. What makes Democrats think they can get any more uh, from Hope Hicks than Mueller got? Well, it seems like what they want to do is try to just get her on the record with Congress about what happened, because she was kind of a key player in all these points, whether it was the statement about what happened in the meeting about the Russian adoptions. The Trump Tower meeting, that that, that big lie that they put out there. Yeah, Yeah. and all of these things. And so and some of these kind of and these questions about obstruction. So they want to get her, I guess, on the record for that and to be able to use that information and to see if there's anything that they can uncover that Mueller didn't uncover. Now, what President Trump is saying, and he seemed really upset about this, he said that they're putting Hope Hicks through hell uh, by asking her to come in again, that he tweeted, uh, is that he, he seems to say that they're just trying to get what what Mueller couldn't get and just trying to kind of keep going over this over and over again. But you know, the White House, ha- I mean, the Congress has the right to call people in to ask questions. And what's going to happen is that the courts are going to decide whether they can 
question these kind of high-level White House officials. But, I mean, this is the sort of thing, these are the sort of investigations that are really kind of common for Congress to to ask. But I think think your comment really shows the weakness of the position the House Democrats are in Mm -hmm. by not saying we're looking into the possibility of impeachment. Because the truth is they don't normally call ex-White House officials in just to randomly check up on whether the special counsel got something right or is there something more. What, what, what do they need to know that for? They're not a, you know, a court of law or something. So I'm not again. I think you would want to hear from very important fact witnesses like Hope Hicks and Don McGahn. But I think it's much easier, both maybe legally in terms of the court fights, but I think especially in terms of the rhetoric, the political fight, to say we are looking into the possibility of whether we have to move ahead with impeachment proceedings right. or not. You, you know, when you're up to your eyeballs and alligators, it's easy to forget why you started this. And why do they why do they want to kind of redo to the extent they did the Mueller report? They wanted to lay it out for the public that, poss- you know, in all likelihood, did not read 400 pages of densely argued reverse backflip, double negative kind of uh, language from from Mueller and his team. And they wanted to crystallize the issues in a way that that might develop more support for acting uh, uh, on impeachment. And they have been systematically stymied, I think, in their in their goal of creating kind of a clear public narrative. And in fact, it's kind of moved beyond the issue of what the president did to kind of the process issue of the fight for information. And they still face the reality that, that, that at the end of every legal pathway they pursue are five justices on the Supreme Court appointed by Republicans, and they will ultimately need one of them at least to side with them or else this could end up with a, a, dimini- a diminishing of Congress's ability to demand information. from the Karen, do you branch. agree that it would be easier for Democrats rhetorically and legally if they were doing this uh, through an impeachment inquiry and basically saying we need to talk to Hope Hicks because she was there when that false statement was put out to the public about what the Trump Tower meeting was about? Uh, when, you know, so-and-so did such-and-such having to do with, like, firing Mueller or firing Comey, would it be better for Democrats? See, I guess I'd have a different take as to why they brought her up there. This is, to my mind, this is more part of building the case on the road to impeachment, right? Because what what Democrats are able to say is he's invoking executive privilege to hide the truth. And remember, part of their narrative is, what is he hiding the president's not being transparent. They will take this to court. I think they'll hope they'll get another favorable ruling, right? And, and they keep citing, now we've got two rulings. Now we've got three rulings. So I view this more as part of building the case for impeachment. And I certainly hope, though, once we get there, that they have a concerted effort, I think you're exactly right, with a message around at least a couple of weeks, very clearly laying it all out. But I think this is a part of just trying to get there. All right, everyone stick around. President Trump just got back to the nation's capital, and he better be ready to read some resumes. That's next. Welcome back. President Trump landing moments ago and en route to the White House right now after kicking off his reelection campaign in Florida with a rally littered with his greatest hits and grudges, highlighting his opposition to illegal immigration, attacking the media, promising to, quote, make America great again, and attacking Hillary Clinton and President Obama. 2020, say hello to 2016. Mr. Trump arrives back to an administration in the throes of some chaos. The acting defense secretary is heading for the door and nearly a dozen top level positions are being filled by someone serving in an acting capacity, an unusual trend, to say the least. But as CNN's Pamela Brown reports, not for President Trump, who says he likes chaos. President Trump returning to the White House after launching his 2020 re-election bid in Orlando, Florida. 
And we are building the wall. Much of it a repeat of his greatest hits from the 2016 campaign. I say I'm going to build a wall and it's going to be a real wall, a big wall, a strong wall. Nobody's coming through unless it's legal. Trump not letting go of his former opponent, Hillary Clinton, and her email controversy. They set up an illegal server, destroyed evidence, deleted and acid-washed 33,000 emails. The crowd gleefully bringing back an old chant. Another favorite target of the president, the news media. By the way, that is a lot of fake news back there. That's a lot. That's a lot. And this crooked media, you talk about crooked Hillary, they're worse than she is. And now the president is returning to a mostly acting administration, with at least 11 officials in the acting capacity, even though President Trump claims he's happy with his cabinet. We have a very good vetting process, and you take a look at our cabinet and our secretary is very good. This after Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan withdrew his name from consideration to be the official head of the department. Now President Trump says the new Acting Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, could be nominated soon. And a top RNC official says President Trump raised nearly $25 million in less than 24 hours. That is a massive number to raise in such a short amount of time. And Jacob underscores the financial advantage President Trump has over uh, his Democratic contenders running right now. For comparison, the leading Democratic contender Joe Biden says his campaign has raised around $20 million overall so far. Jake. All right, Pamela Brown at the White House. Uh, and we have with us in our panel of experts, uh, Alex Nazarian, who has a new book about the Trump cabinet. It's called The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, Jake. Who better to have to talk about this? First of all, let me just ask you, you make the point in the book that the chaos that the Trump administration uh, has surrounding it, you use a different word that uh, starts with an S and ends with the word show, um, uh, but that that chaos actually serves a purpose for him to get his um, to, to get his agenda through. Well, look, even today we had the big EPA clean power plan repeal. We have many, many policy initiatives of the Trump administration moving forward, often under the cover of darkness, just because their assault on our media infrastructure and just on our attention is so unrelenting. And Bannon will admit that that was the goal. And others will say, what you see as chaos is our method. And that was someone in the chief of staff suite, a senior official told me that. And what they mean by that is they use what seems like the chaos, the daily chaos, the feeling that this administration is about to come apart, which Mm. is the feeling we've had since pretty much January 20th. Right. they've used that to their advantage. Now, it also, of course, is often true that this administration looks like, I mean, that that it is seemingly on the verge of collapse. That it is chaotic, yeah. Right. Sure. (laughs) So let me ask you, Ayesha, the the idea that the president likes all these acting secretaries, first of all, it means he doesn't have to have confirmation battles. Uh, Second of all, he says he likes it. It gives him a lot of flexibility. Um, 
But there are drawbacks to it, aren't there? there? There are absolutely drawbacks to it, because if you have someone in an acting position, then there's a question of, OK, how can this person actually drive the policy? Because you don't know how long they're going to be around and they just don't have the authority of someone that's been confirmed. Uh, so he may like it as far as flexibility. I would think that Congress would have an issue with it because then you are bringing up constitutional issues by basically just having people in acting positions and kind of circumventing what the Constitution requires, which is for these people to be confirmed. Uh, but it definitely does affect it affects the workers. It affects people working under them because you don't have a clear vision of what should happen. And at times you can have legal uh, ramifications because you can challenge some positions by saying or some actions that a, uh, uh, that a department took by saying they this person was acting. They didn't have the authority to do this. There, I mean, one would think that if there were a Democratic president doing this, a Republican Senate would be offended. They have the advice and consent uh, power. Uh, but but this Senate, the Mitch McConnell Senate, doesn't seem particularly bothered by the fact that uh, the president's basically ignoring them and usur- usurping their power. Yet, yet another case where the Senate is contrary, I think, to the intentions of the founders, not standing up for his institutional power. But you're absolutely right. I mean, look, it strengthens the president. It strengthens White House staff to have an acting secretary over there or an acting person in other senior positions. They don't quite have the standing they have if they were confirmed. And further, what happens in confirmation hearings? Senators on the relevant committee exact promises and pledges and commitments from the person who's up there, and which also which strengthens the senators. It lessens the flexibility that the White House has to order them to do something that they, the Senate doesn't want them to do. And it gives actually a secretary, I remember this when I was in government, cabinet secretary, a bit of an excuse to say to some White House staffer who's badgering him to do something, I'm sorry, I committed to the chairman that I can't do that, and I just can't now go back on it. So the, the balance of power already tilting way too far to the White House, to the executive branch in general, and to the White House within the executive branch, and to yeah. the president and a few staffers in the White House within the White House organization, tilts even more when they're just, when they're just acting people in these positions. And, and Karen, Politico has a good story about this today, and it described the difficulty President Trump has had in assembling this cabinet. They say Trump has had a cabinet by default, with many of its members simply being the last person standing after others pulled out of the running, declined the president's offers, or couldn't get through the confirmation hearings. If there's a thread running through them all, it's a president with a penchant for choosing many top appointees based on instinct and without regard for prior government experience. And we've seen that time and time again. Right, absolutely. Why would you want to take a position where you know you're not going to have much power and authority, you're going to be told what to do by the White House, and they're not going to have your back if something happens? And, and Alex, in your book, The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington, it's a great book, pick it up. Uh, you say Trump has kept Steve Mnuchin, Wilbur Ross, and Ben Carson in the administration because he, quote, forgot about them. What do you mean he forgot about them? I mean, they're, they're basically just making less uh, trouble for him than others so they get to stay. They're not bothering anyone. They're the house guests you don't really have to think about. And is that why some people get fired in his cabinet and other people don't? Because they cause trouble for him? I mean, I don't know what happened with Shanahan, whether he actually withdrew his name or Trump said, forget it, I don't want you to do this. But if they really cause enough headaches, then then they go out the door? What led to Scott Pruitt's firing? I believe it was a tweet from Laura Ingram. It wasn't any of the more than a dozen investigations into his apparently unethical conduct. But the Shanahan fiasco reminds us who is not Secretary of Defense right now, which is Jim Mattis, Jim Mattis who was who, a person who reassured a lot of people right. when he was there. And, and resigned uh, as protest for a policy decision by the president. The book, again, The Best People, Trump's Cabinet and the Siege on Washington. Thanks for joining us for this yeah. panel. Everyone else, stick around. One twenty twenty, or whose plans and six-word phrase seem to really be paying off. That's next. In our 2020 lead today, are all of her plans paying off? A new poll shows Senator Elizabeth Warren surging to second place in the Democratic presidential race, surpassing Senator Bernie Sanders. 
Sanders throwing shade today at some of the centrist Democrats who are now publicly praising Senator Warren, the subject line of a Sanders campaign email on the subject. Sanders to corporate America, I welcome your hatred. CNN's MJ Lee reports. I've done more than 100 town halls now. Elizabeth Warren enjoying a breakout moment. Shoot, I'm over 30,000 selfies now. Yeah, so I'm in this. And it seems to be paying off. Warren is gaining ground in the crowded Democratic race for president in a new national poll. The Massachusetts senator seeing a five-point bump among Democratic voters since last month, putting her even with Bernie Sanders. I got to run my campaign. Senator Warren will run her campaign. And I think what the evidence will show is that I am, in fact, the strongest candidate to defeat Trump. In a potential warning sign for Sanders, Warren gaining significantly among self-identified liberals. The countdown now on to next week's first Democratic debates. Warren taking center stage the first night, a primetime opportunity to go big on her ideas-heavy approach that has fueled her success. I have a plan for that. I have a plan for that. Warren's ideas even attracting more moderate Democrats who disagree with Sanders. The co-founder of centrist think tank Third Way telling CNN that Warren's policies are within the lines of Democratic policies. They are not Democratic socialist policies. Sanders striking back, tweeting today, the cat is out of the bag. The corporate wing of the Democratic Party is publicly anybody but Bernie. So far, Warren showing no signs of hard feelings toward Sanders. Bernie and I have been friends for a very, very long time. I think it's great for him to get out and make the case that he wants to make. Bernie fights from the heart. Now, we asked the Warren team about her rise in the polls, and a senior campaign aide gave us this rare statement. They said, quote, we don't pay much attention to the polls. They will go up and down throughout the race, and focusing on the daily headline, tweet, or cable news chatter is not a recipe for long-term success. The Warren team, Jake, clearly trying to downplay the horse race. Jake. All right, MJ Lee, let's continue some of that cable news chatter that uh, <laughs> the Warren, camp- Warren campaign team so uh, bemoans. Um, let's take a look at the trends from April of the same uh, Monmouth poll. Now, this is a national poll, not state by state, and it's one poll, a Monmouth. Uh, it shows that but right before Vice President Biden entered the race to now, Biden is up five, Warren is up nine, Sanders is down six, Kamala Harris holding steady, Mayor Pete Buttigieg down Three. Yeah. What do you see here that's significant, Ron? Well, well, first, it is striking how much the national polling and the state polling has had the same pattern of these five candidates separating from the rest of the field uh, at this point. They are consistently the top five everywhere. There's no question that, that Warren is rising at Sanders' expense. I mean, that is just indisputable, I think, in both, again, national and state polling. But again, this, I think, polling does underscore one structural advantage for Joe Biden, which is that his side of the field is less crowded than the other side of the field. If you look at that Monmouth poll today, he's at about 40% among moderates. Among liberals, it's kind of a crack up between Biden and Sanders and Warren. And similarly on age, if you look at people under 50, it's a close three-way race between those big three with the others behind. But when you get to 50 and older, and this is what we are seeing in state after state, Biden's ahead by 25 points. So ultimately, you know, the question to me, the question is, um, can uh, and and by the way, the moderates and the and the older voters are a bigger share of the party than people realize. And what this means is that Biden has less 
competition for what may ultimately a bit be a bigger share of the party. And until some of the other candidates can show more strength in that, he still has a leg to stand on, despite the kind of sauce that he is applying to his own legs Aisha, at this point. Aisha, it's interesting because Senator Sanders responding to reports of uh of this centrist group, the third way, uh, siding with Senator Warren, or at least praising some of the things she's done, tweeting the cat's out of the bag. The corporate wing of the Democratic Party is publicly anybody but Bernie. They know our progressive agenda of Medicare for all, breaking up the big banks, taking on drug companies and raising wages is the real threat to the billionaire class. I have to say, um, I think that Elizabeth Warren supports all of those things as well. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to, to paint her as a tool of corporate America now. But I guess what he's trying to do is say that I am the true standard bearer. I am the true one who's going to really kind of start the revolution and do something and to really that's why I'm making people uncomfortable. So kind of turning it into an advantage like, yes, these people are maybe going with uh, Warren, but that's because she's telling them uh, or at least telling them what they may want to hear or and I am speaking the truth. And so he's trying to turn that into his advantage. We'll see if it works, but that's what he's trying to do. But I think the difference in 2016, right, it was about railing against the establishment. It was railing against Hillary Clinton in this time. You have a number of different candidates, some of them, like you said, clustered around the left, the center. And you have someone like Elizabeth Warren who, you know, her whole strategy of slow and steady wins the race. I think it may be working because from everywhere she's traveled, I continue to hear people say, you know, actually, I wasn't sure what to expect, but she was really good. She took the questions. She's clearly hit her stride. She was a professor, so she knows how to talk to people. You know, Bernie has just a different personality style. And there is something Mm. about Elizabeth Warren that I think is maybe I would call it a palatable populist that I think could have uh, appeal beyond just the left. I mean, I wouldn't counter out in that. And again, Bernie is so dug in on this democratic socialism. And I think a lot of Democrats don't believe that that's going to be the thing to beat Trump. You found it surprising that Bernie was going with an electability argument over Elizabeth Warren in, in that clip where he said that he was the strongest one to take on Trump. Yeah, but there's some polls that suggest that. I'm not sure it means much. I don't think it means much. Um, yeah, I, I just, I mean, I don't think he wants to say the truth, which is I have never joined the Democratic Party, yeah. except like when he has to to get on the ballot for presidential elections, because I don't like this party of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. I don't like the compromises they make with the private sector. I really am a socialist. Elizabeth Warren, I think, said, didn't you say pretty early on, I'm not a right. socialist. Right. She said she's a capitalist. I'm yeah. a capitalist yeah. who wants to fix capitalism, reduce the power of the banks. That is a much more mainstream position in the Democratic Party. There is just not a majority of the Democratic Party that has signed on, I don't think, for no. democratic socialism. You know, this is something that could get resolved fairly early, though, because New Hampshire has been critical for New England candidates historically. And it is hard to imagine that the one of those two, Warren and Sanders, who finishes behind the other in New Hampshire, will not be significantly wounded by that. I mean, I, I've got to think that one of them is going to come out of New Hampshire a lot more viable than the other. And then as you move on, obviously, to South Carolina, Nevada, and the Super Tuesday. And they're, they're both from likely, neighboring states. They are, right, right. Yeah, they, <laughs> the, one of them is Kennedy likely... Kennedy in 1980 is the only New England uh, contestant who has lost the New Hampshire primary, and that was against a sitting, uh, a sitting president. So there's a big uh, kind of a bar that they're expecting to meet. I would go meet. further. One of them is likely to... Well, one of them will beat the other in Iowa. Yes. Right now, that looks like that could be Elizabeth Warren, who has a little, grew up in Oklahoma, has a little more maybe a feel for middle America. If she wins Iowa and then wins New Hampshire, right. she's A, very, very strong as a candidate for the yeah. actual nomination. And certainly Sanders is finished. So I agree. The whole elimination process, the more one looks at this race and tries to think through scenarios, could be faster and uh, the field could close to a smaller number right. faster than I at least once thought, I think. Karen, as a Democrat who really wants to win the White House, are you mm. not concerned at, at all about the electability questions that have been raised about Senator Warren having to do with the DNA test 
and her claims of Native American heritage, does that, does that not concern you at all? No, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. I think wisely, she went back to doing exactly why people love for reminding people about, again, this pragmatic populism. All right, everyone stick around. Up next, why the Trump administration's latest move to eliminate an Obama-era regulation has some scientists really worried about the air you breathe. Stay with us. We've ended the war on clean coal. Coal is coming back. Going to have clean coal, really clean coal. Internationally, President Trump delivering on that promise today as his administration rolled back an Obama-era plan that would have had by the year 2030, strict limits on carbon emissions from coal power plants. The Environmental Protection Agency head says the old policy would have cost low- and middle-income Americans more money. But as CNN's Bill Weir reports, critics of the move point to the ties the current EPA head has with the very industry for whom he's loosening regulations. Before leading the EPA, Andrew Wheeler was a coal lobbyist. And today's rule change announcement made it hard to tell he ever left that job. The contrast between our approach and the Green New Deal, where plans like it couldn't be clearer. Rather than Washington telling Americans what type of energy they can use, or how they can travel, or even what they can eat, we are working cooperatively with the states to provide an affordable, dependable, and diverse supply of energy. In reality, American coal consumption is at a 40-year low, not because of regulation, but competition. For the first time ever, More power is now being generated by cleaner, cheaper renewables. A free market trend President Obama tried to accelerate with a tough carbon cap called the Clean Power Plan. But after several groups sued, a conservative Supreme Court majority kept those rules from taking effect. And today, the EPA killed them. Instead, they will give states three years to come up with their own pollution standards. Our air and water are the cleanest they've ever been by far. This is a lie. In fact, the American Lung Association says the air has gotten measurably worse in the last two years, and four in ten Americans are now breathing unhealthy air. And according to a New York Times analysis, this is just one of 83 rules being rolled back on everything from toxic chemicals to endangered species to the climate crisis. So scientists can't help but worry. The people who have been appointed to uh, run the EPA are are industry sort of lapdogs, close ties to fossil fuel interests and the Koch brothers. And what they've been trying to do is to literally roll back the environmental protections of the past half century. Well, there were a couple of coal miners in attendance there today, Jake. Uh, No one bothered to tell those guys that the two fastest growing jobs in America right now by far are solar and wind technicians. Uh, But ultimately, this will probably end up in court. Pollution burn in one state doesn't stay there, of course, so you can imagine one state suing another. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Even the man behind the miracle on the Hudson has problems with Boeing's troubled 737 MAX. That's next. some breaking news just moments ago. Longtime Trump confidant Hope Hicks left her closed door hearing at the House Judiciary Committee where she spent most of the day testifying, most of the day really refusing to answer questions about her time in the White House, though she did discuss other matters. In her money lead today, he knows how to land a plane under pressure. Captain Chelsea Sully Sullenberger, the man behind the miracle on the Hudson, was called to Congress today to talk about the Boeing 737 MAX, which of course had two fatal crashes within five months. Sully said he spent time in a simulator and still had difficulty landing the plane. The accident investigation 
I can tell you firsthand that the startle factor is real and it's huge. Even knowing what was going to happen, I could see how crews could have run out of time before they could have solved the problems. The 737 Maxes have been grounded for three months in the U.S. That's all the time we have. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.